you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. He wandered by the sands of Lisadell. His mind ran all on money, cares and fears. And he had known at last some prudent years before they heaped his grave under the hill. But while he passed before a plashy place, a log warm with its grey and muddy mouth sang that somewhere to north or west or south there dwelt a gay, exalting, gentle race under the golden or the silver skies. That if a dancer stayed his hungry foot, it seemed the sun and moon were the fruit. And at that singing he was no more wise. He mused beside the well of Scanavin. He mused upon his mockers without fail his sudden vengeance where a country tale when out the night had drunk his body in. But one small knot grass growing by the pool sang where unnecessary cruel voice. Old silence bids its chosen race rejoice. Whatever raveled waters rise and fall, or stormy silver freight the gold of day, and midnight there enfold them like a fleece, and lover there by lover be at peace. The tale drove his fine, angry mood away. You were listening to a few verses of the man who dreamed of fairyland by Yeats. In today's episode, I had a chat with Dr. Frank Shu from Baidu about his research on translating AI from more of a research-oriented prototype to an actual clinical product. And he also gave us some insights about the role that the Bikai society can play in the coming years as World Health Organization moves to a more digital health focus. Welcome to the fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare. We are recording on a cold December morning in Darmstadt, Germany. I'm your host, Anirban, and it is my pleasure to warmly welcome our guest for today, Frank Shu. Frank is an intelligent healthcare scientist in Baidu, where he performs research mainly on bringing AI for ophthalmic imaging. He is also a member of World Health Organization's Digital Health Technical Advisory Group. So I'm really looking forward to hear from Frank 
the industry perspective and the general perspective of digital health, AI, imaging AI in the pandemic years and as well as the post-pandemic years. So really welcome to the podcast, Frank. Okay, thank you for the introduction, Annabelle. It's my great honor to share my experience with the audience. Let me introduce myself first. I'm Frank Xu from, actually, I, I'm holding a Singapore passport, but I was born in China and got my PhD in China. I received my bachelor and PhD degree from the University of Science and Technology of China in 2004 and 2009, respectively. And then I moved to Singapore, start my first job there at Nanyang Technological University for my postdoc research to start my first career for two years. And then I moved to the Institute for Infocom Research, ASTAR. It's a kind of national research institute in Singapore. And then I spent six years there and focus on eye image research. And after that, I moved back to China and start the journey of industry and the translation work. But actually at that, that year, I, I got an offer from the Chinese Academy of Sciences, but I didn't join the uh, research institute. Finally, I choose the industry. After one year short stay in Guangzhou and I, it's also a public company, not a small one, but it's not related to the health industry. Then I joined Baidu and start this long time journey. I think I will stay in this area for quite a long time because after eight years research on eye image processing, and I already have a lot of publication patents and some big research grants. But I think this is more important to put this into real clinical usage. So I choose Baidu, which is a tech giant in China. It's, it's quite well known, right? They call this China Google, which is famous for the search engine. But now it's the big AI company. It's one of the leading AI company in the world, not only in China. It has a so-called full-stack AI capacity. That means from the chips to the computing framework, which is similar to TensorFlow. We, we have a framework called Pedal Pedal, which is the second biggest in China. And we also have a lot of open source code, which is called Baidu Brain, share for free to the users around the world. And we also have a lot of business on AI, building on AI. Not only the search engine, but we also have the AI for the economy, AI for healthcare, AI for smart city, and for intelligent transportation system. A lot of things. So, yeah, I think I can stop here for the first question. Thank you. In a very small time frame, you talked about your journey for, I guess, almost two decades now. So that's really wonderful summary. And it's really good to know, I guess, most of us are already familiar with uh, Baidu and how big it is, even if even those who are not living in China, but it's still hearing from you the breadth that Baidu has in terms of the different fields, different sectors where it's bringing in AI is really, really impressive. So I will, of course, talk about the industrial perspective, but the first question would be about the more clinical question. So you are doing AI for ophthalmic imaging, for eye imaging. 
So what is really the clinical motivation of uh, doing this research? Okay. Actually, I think we'll start this from the industry aspect because see, for the company and also for the research institutes, the final goal is to use, right? If there is no real need in the society, I think this is just for some papers on also called the fundamental research. But actually, everyone knows microimaging is a kind of application research. It's not fundamental ones. We don't develop a new theory. We just use the computer vision algorithms to tackle, to solve the real clinical problems. So, yeah, you know, for the industry translation, for medical image, there are two major topics. One is for the long CT, and the other is for the founder's camera screening. Why these two are very important and get the first success in this area? Because the lung, you know, is quite important to people and it's quite popular. And also for the founder's camera, it's easy to access, it's cheap, and we have a lot of data to train the model. And there's a real social need. That means a lot of people need this kind of screening. But before AI, before this AI software, we, people cannot get this kind of service because the ophthalmologists are quite limited. For example, in China, there are 1.4 billion people. And I think at least maybe 0.2 billion people need a screening every year because they are in a high risk of blindness leading eye disease. But you know, there are only 40,000 ophthalmologists in China. So it's a simple calculation. The ophthalmologists are far, far away from enough to serve all the people. They need this kind of service. So we developed this kind of AI software to assist them to better manage the vision healthcare. That means not only for the patients, they have eye disease, but also for the patients, they're in high risk, but not get the disease now. So it's quite a long time because this first research and the first application is done in Iowa University. And this group also get the first FDA certificate AI software in the world. And they start this research from, yeah, I think almost over 20 years ago. I think it's 1999. At that time, it's quite a famous professor in this area, Abramov from Iowa University. He is an ophthalmologist. And also, he got a master's degree in engineering. So he developed the first remote, or they call the distance screening software for diabetic retinopsy. It's kind of blindness-leading eye disease. He developed the software himself 22 years ago. And with the development of the so-called AI, or we would like to call this pattern recognition. It's an old-fashioned word, but people know this word well. So with this technology, he can he developed a software, uh, or his group, and also his company developed a software which can detect the so-called DIA, diabetic retinopsy, this kind of this, and got the FDA certificate, which can be widely used in the U.S., with the reimbursement code. They get the certificate in 
2017. And before that, they have three clinical trials around the world in three different areas. It takes seven years to finish these three clinical trials. So it's quite a long journey to get the first certificate. But so far, I know the business is not that good, similar like the companies in China in this area, because, I mean, the general public need time to be educated, to get well with this kind of new technology. Because people always trust doctor, but they may not trust this kind of technology. So from this aspect, I think the AI for medical imaging, I mean, for disease screening is quite useful, but it still takes time to let people accept this kind of technology. And why I choose I, not the lung? Because you know the responsibility. It's quite serious if you make a wrong diagnosis on the lung issues. It's usually cancer, right? So if you made a mistake, then it's quite serious. So I don't want to touch the AI software for the lung, for the heart, for the brain, because this, the software developed and also the user, I mean, the, the doctor will take high responsibility for this kind of mistakes. But for I, it's not that serious, but it is the most important things apart from these three. Because the vision is the first, the most important channel that people get information from outside. One said is from over 80% information are from the eye. So I think it's quite important to the living quality. People don't want to get blind, but people don't know until they get blind, right? So if there is a easy access and affordable way to perform this kind of screening, then I think it's quite useful for people to get a better life. So it's a motivation. And from the clinical side, it's also proved that the early, early and the regular diagnosis for a specific people, for people with diabetes or people over 45, they need a screening every year. Or especially the people with the uh, family history on this kind of disease, they must have this kind of screening. And this, we call this recommendation, right? Is taken by many countries in many kind of guidance, clinical guidance, not only for the diabetes, but also for the vision control. That means for the myopia control for the young people. But it's also taken this kind of recommendation for the general public. Yeah, I think the motivation, I can stop here about the motivation. It's quite useful. And now we all know that it's quite cheap. It's affordable. So once we have these two criteria, then I think it's a good business, not only for the research and the papers. Yeah, yeah. thank you. That's really, I mean, what you have done is really starting from the more commercial side of it. You brought down to the more societal aspects. And I guess if I can sort of rephrase what you said, it's basically a significant amount of people, it doesn't matter where they are in the world, would benefit from screening, from regular screening, especially in the developing world like India, China, where you have such huge population and the ratio of population to ophthalmologist is so skewed that 
if they are not living in one of the major urban centers, they have little chance of getting screening maybe once in 10 years. So there, what AI has the potential is to significantly increase the access to people who are in need. And they don't necessarily have to go blind if they have access to such screening early on. So that's really, really a very important societal clinical need. I totally agree with you. So I guess I will come to the next question about the business case and how the business is going. But just to understand the problem that you mentioned is that from the early days of pattern recognition algorithms, I guess the more traditional feature-based ones to the modern deep learning, we have seen many, many generations of algorithmic development. And then you also talked about these three major screenings that took about uh, a decade or so to get the numbers and then from there getting the approval. So do you think are these new set of deep learning algorithms, AI algorithms, are they really matured enough to go into the clinical wild? That's quite a good question. It's quite nice. Okay, it's a long story. (laughs) Actually, the first... FDA certificate algorithm from Dr. Abramov from his group. It's not a deep learning based algorithm. It's a traditional algorithm based, but with the public available results, I mean, for the clinical trial, you can see the accuracy. It's not that high, especially when you compare with the first JAMA paper published by, by DeepMind. It's quite low because for DeepMind, the AUC. I don't know whether you're familiar with this. Can you guess about the AUC the, we can achieve on the DR screening? Can you guess about that? I can imagine around 90 or 90 plus. It's nearly 100. It's 90, 90.7. And it's better, this algorithm is better than all ophthalmologists. You know, you're in real world, it's impossible. So deep learning has a big problem on overfitting and the so-called the generalization ability issues. So even you can get a high result or high performance on the test data set. Once you validate on a new data set, especially when you change the device and also the operators, even the operators, because you know a lot of images are, are low quality, then the performance drops a lot. I can come back to the first FDA certificate device. The, for the AOC, I don't have the AOC, but for the sensitivity and the specificity, it's just uh, around 90%. Yeah, actually it's lower than 90, a, a little bit lower. And for ch- in China, we have now we have three so-called certificate de- medical devices for DR, for diabetic retinopsy screening. With the public data, I checked their performance. It's just uh, a little bit higher than 90% and lower than 93. It's just between 87 and 93%. So this is a reasonable result because it's in a real clinical trial environment, not just for the data set. So for deep learning, they have the issue. You need a lot of data, but it's, there is a quite famous data set called Kaggle, the data set, you know, but Many people know that about us and even more than 20% images in that data set has a wrong level because 
they didn't make the so-called annotation from the images. They just collect the so-called labels from the EMR. It's just a record about the patient. It doesn't mean the people check the image and match the labels. So for many people, they may have problem with only one eye and the rest one is, is healthy or not get that theories. But for the labels, because it's annotated by person, then they have wrong labels, right? And for some patients, even the, they are get diagnosis as positive, but they may not be diagnosed with the images. So the images, when you check the images only, may, you make different results. And also we have another very interesting observation, not only from Google, but also from us. I mean, Google means that the JAMA paper publishing 2016, it has a very interesting study about correlation, about annotations among the ophthalmologists. It has a very interesting observation, the inter-observer consistency or the so-called correlation is about 65%. And the intra-observer is also 65%. That means for each image, ophthalmologists check the image for three times, they may have a different result. That means both positive and negative, they can get the result. And if you ask three ophthalmologists to check the same image, then you can get both negative and positive results. So, you know, the annotation is a big issue with the data set. So, everyone knows the for deep learning, garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't have the very so-called, the, the so-called the gold standard ground truth, you cannot train a good model. Even you have uh, some very nice algorithm which can ignore the wrong labels. But you can guess, at the end of the day, you don't have a perfect model. And what's more serious is about the, in the real clinical usage, the patients and the ophthalmologists, they don't trust the algorithm, just tell you yes, no, but without the reason and the reasoning process. So for the ophthalmologists, they train not with AI, right? They must know with what are the symptoms, what are the rules, and what are the grades corresponding to these symptoms they find in certain area. So they need an explanation. And the patients, they don't accept you announce them they have a disease, but you tell them why and how serious it is. So for current certificate medical devices, they only have one function. They just tell you positive or negative. Yeah, this is a real scenario. For the real clinical usage, you must give them explanation and how serious is that situation, right? So people are developing an update version about the current software with this kind of function. At least they need to provide the grades. For DR, for the international standards, we have five grades. And in China, they have so-called seven grades. It's quite a small difference. It's just for the most severe case. In China, they further divide this into three stages. Uh, for the international standard, it's just uh, the grade four. But in China, they have grade four, five, six for that yeah, specific stage. But it doesn't matter. At least you should provide this kind of severity grading function. And the other issue is you need to tell where is the symptom 
and how big is it and what kind of symptom it is and what kind of treatment suggestion is, right? But it's a long journey, I think. For, for us, we're still at the first stage and we didn't get the certificate at this time point, but we will get the certificate soon. I think within half a year. But why we don't provide this kind of function? Even we can have, because you know, in many publications, it's claimed that this have the so-called symptom detection and the lesion segmentation, and also for the grading, they have this kind of function. Why they don't put this into that software? It's, it's an industry issue, and it's a clinical issue, because you need clinical trial. Once you have this function, you need to clinically validate it's safe and it's effective it's efficient and effective for the clinical usage, then it's a long journey because you need to validate it is suitable for the major risks in China or around the world, the risk issues. And also for a lot of demographic subcategory, you know, male, female, age, and a lot of issues. And also, this also needs to be validated on different machines, different cameras, and different kind of the image qualities. So it's a, it's a big cost. You know, when you recruit a patient for the clinical trial, you at least need to pay 200 US dollars. Then once you have this kind of functions, I, I mean, it's, it's quite simple to us. Uh, that means if you have data set. But when you recruit the real person for the clinical trial, it's a big amount of money. Then for a lot of company, they have to perform this stage by stage. For the first stage, we have yes, no, binary classification. Then we have five class or seven class grading. And then we have all kinds of lesion segmentation. For lesion segmentation, it's very challenging because the ground truth is very challenging for, to determine. That means you need to recruit a lot of ophthalmologists to label the ground truth. But actually, the purpose of this kind of software is to get relief from the hard work. But now you ask them to do more work to help you to develop and validate these kind of tools. So yeah, it's a long story. Once you, it's easy to have a paper, I know. Once you make a, the government certificate software as a medical device to provide service to the patients, it's a long story. For the journey I studied nearly four years ago, I think the first milestone we can achieve is half a year later, we get the first certificate with the binary classification function. But what's the advantage of my research or our product? That means we don't only focus on one disease, which is called diabetic retinopathy. We also develop this for glaucoma and macular disease. And for the macular disease, we're not only for the so-called the most popular one is called AMD, age-related macular degeneration. We, we can cover 10 kinds of macular disease. So from the governance aspects, they claim that our software can detect 12 kinds of eye disease. So, you know, once you have only one disease, it's a binary classification and the clinical trial, we just need thousand people or maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people. Once you have 12, 
it's not a simple multiply 12. You need to do multiple machines, that means multiple cameras. And the correlation among the single disease. So it's a huge work. I spend a lot of time on that. So you see, so how busy we are. <laughs> okay. I think, is it enough for you to understand the background about this? Absolutely. I think you, I mean, you have done a wonderful job explaining to our, let's say, Mikai focused audience how difficult the reality is and how far away from a Mikai paper to a real world translation is. I mean, if I don't know if I would be in one hand count all the points that you mentioned, but I guess you talked about the variability of the data from the source itself. So how the images are taken between different devices, different operators. Then you talked about the variability of annotation. So clear cases of healthy or very severely diseased, most doctors will agree. But in between there are, the gray zone is so gray that the, the inter and inter-observer variability is like 60%, 60 to 70%. So that that makes the entire annotation is a big, big challenge. And then, of course, it comes to the actual software and for what type of diseases you are making the software. And that basically means the more diseases, the, the, the increase of these basically ends up in the situation of you have to have a significant statistical power of the clinical trials that you are doing to ensure that this is even like the end results that you are getting are those statistically relevant. So yeah, I mean, I'm probably missing a few other of those. But one of the first things that you mentioned, it was a very interesting thing because it was a public data set. And I know a significant number of Mikai and other top conference papers are coming from this Kegel uh, diabetic retinopathy data set. And yeah. what you are saying is that for this data set, the ground truth sort of quote-unquote annotation is basically not coming as ground truth, but people are checking the electronic health records uh, either manually or through natural language processing and getting the numbers out. And they are never looking at the images. So there are annotation problems that are really big annotation problems, not because of the gray zone of not defined a clinical problem, but really how the annotation is done. So do you think that basically means we are going into a community-wide overfitting to problematic results? And that means most of the work being done in this space, if it's only on this data set, that, that those are probably useless in the, in the clinical setting? Actually, I didn't very negative about this because, you know, for the, we have different tasks. For the algorithm development, we, we need make assumption the data is correct. Then we can fine-tune our algorithm. It, it's still using, useful. But when you develop a medical device for real use, then you can build your software based on the research, previous research. I think this research are important, quite important. And once the researcher knows that the annotation has problem, they can find the so-called clean, clean data set from their clinical partner and try their software. And now with the public data set, a lot of public data set is available for certain disease, especially on the lung and the eye. We have a lot of public data set, not big ones, but you can imagine some data set are quite clean, so-called clean with the real diagnosis and the, the gold standard ground truth. And 
they can benchmark their software to test whether this is good for clinical usage, I mean, the potential for the usage. And if with this dirty data, you still cannot get a good performance, then yeah, it's, a, it's another story. But once you get a very satisfactory performance on the so-called toy data, then you can start a real research for clinical usage. Then with this idea, and because the, the quite famous Kaggle data set is not clean, it has a lot of label issues. So I collaborate with the top eye hospital in China, the Zhongshan Ophthalmic Eye Center. We, we make six, now we have seven data sets publicly available on the eye image. Not only for the single modality, for the single disease, we have this data set for multiple disease, multiple device, and multiple modality and multiple tasks. Not only for binary classification, we also have layer segmentation, structure segmentation, lesion segmentation, and grading. Yeah, we have a lot of tasks. And every year we have this challenge on Mikai or ESP. And we have the cash award to encourage more participants to get into this area. You know, I think you are very, very familiar with the Mikai community. I start get into this area from 2021. I mean, 11 years ago. That is my first paper on Mikai. Now, at that time, I is a very tiny area. It's every year about two to three paper accepted in the main conference. And after six years, it's, it doesn't change much, but the paper, the average acceptance number is about six. And after that, once we have the public data set, not only from us, I think at least there are three groups shared public data set. Then there are more than 20 papers a year. Now it's one of the top three organs. I mean, inspect from the organs is one of the top three. So that means once you have a good data and it's a hot topic, then a lot of people can get into this area. So that's why we have this kind of challenge and the public data set. And also, after each challenge, we have a challenge review paper. Actually, we have two purposes. The first one, because all the paper are published on MIA and the TMI, it's high impact. So every participants get a rewards beside the cash award, and they also have a good publication. And for the paper, they have very high citation. For the first challenge review we held, is called Refuge. It's glaucoma detection from the fundus image. The paper has more than 100 citations in the first year. And I know a lot of good publications are generated from this data set. Even we have Lancet Digital Health, TMI, several TMI, several MIA, and several Mikai. And for this year, because I'm quite familiar with the area, I know many paper on the eye image, the site, they use this data set. And for a lot of paper in the review stage, if they didn't use the refuge data set for glaucoma detection, the reviewer will ask this question, why you test, why you not test your algorithm on the refuge data set? Because for the data set, we not only have the positive or neg and negative images, we also have five cameras. That means the data are from five cameras. If you have a very nice algorithm, you must have a better performance on this data set. So it's a standard data set in this area. 
I'm very happy with that because we really did something to promote this area and benefit this whole community. I mean, the Mikai community. Yeah, it's, it's quite a wonderful thing. Yeah, thanks so much for talking about the refuge challenge. I was about to go there, but you already brought us in. So that was really an easy transition. So yeah, first of all, to all our listeners, if you are interested in working on ophthalmic imaging, do try out the refuge data set that's publicly available, very thorough data set, and that has a lot of variability. So you can try out your algorithms and see how good your algorithms are over there. But I guess the bigger question, of course, is that when you have such a sustained period of being present in Mikai, that really leads a lot of snowball effect. You make a lot of papers, really an entire field develops around it. And I guess from these many years of organizing the challenge, tell us about, I guess, three main lessons that you learned by organizing this challenge. Okay, I would like to tell the truth. I don't want to make story. So the first thing I claim is a bad thing. That means for most of the participants, they are new in this area and they try, just try the off-the-shelf tools. That means the metro models to get a, I mean, get a rank or win a award. Many of them are, are in this stage. This is not good, but it's not bad from the other aspect. I would like to encourage people to get into this area. That's not bad, right? A lot of people are new to this area and they can try to use algorithms they are familiar with to, to play on this data set and get a nice feedback. Yeah, but the novelty is limited, right? So the, the first lesson learned is a lot of people are just play with the data. <laughs> yeah. But the second lesson is a new one, and it's just opposite with this one. Because, yeah, once it depends on the means, the question you design. For example, for Refuge 2, we focus on the cross-camera adaptation issue. That means we have three modalities for training. Because the Refuge 1, they have three models. And for Refuge 2, we provide another two models. That is Definitely uh, cross-domain issues. You must tackle this issue and then you can have good performance. Yeah, so it's quite nice. The winner uses a very fancy cross-domain adaptation algorithm and get very nice performance on the two new camera models. And this can be used in the real scenario because for us, we're facing the, the issue very Urgently, because you know, for the China government, I mean, they usually call this CFD, China FD, but actually they name NMPA, National Medical Product Association. They don't give you a certificate on the medical device, I mean, the tool or the software tools on all camera models. Once you certify that you have reached the, the goal that you you set, that means the accuracy reach over 90%, then you can give you a certificate on the specific model, not the, the brand, but just the model. But you know, there are quite a few popular model, camera model in the market. For the software, you'd better match the top 80 and at least top half, right? There's a lot of, there are many 
models. And for each model, once you validate it work well for that model, you need a benchmark set. I can give you a number. If you have just a binary classification on one model for one disease, you need about 1,000 samples. Then if you have multiple disease, multiple stage, that means not a binary classification, you can guess how big the data set is. So once you have the, the, this big benchmark data set, you need a huge training set to get the performance for that. But if you don't have a good domain adaptation algorithm, you just need to collect data and make manual annotation. But for us, we cannot afford that. So we are trying many adaptation algorithms. So it's nice to see the participants, they develop new domain adaptation algorithm. You know, ensemble is a good trick to get high performance. Ah, it's a third lesson, yeah. The first, I, I just jumped to the third lesson, third, third lesson. but I, I will finish the second one first. Because they have a fancy algorithm and achieve a good performance, these things worthy and deserve um, a very positive feedback and a word about that. So they have a TMI paper just about their algorithm. And I think it's very useful to inspire the other participants how to win the challenge, not only just with the fine-tuning, actual data and ensemble. You can have real algorithm, your new idea, and have your own high-quality publication on the data set. It's a benefit, it's a benefit the, the participants can get from their aspect. But for us, why we have this challenge with people? We just want to tell the community, especially the ophthalmologist community, we would like to tell them there is a very important clinical task they are aiming to solve. And what's the high standard level the algorithm can achieve? And what are the fancy algorithm behind that? Why this can achieve high performance on multiple devices? And the last issue is just the third one. I just mentioned the ensemble. Once you have different people help you to try different trials, I mean, different solutions, and you make an ensemble, we can get a better performance. And we always have this at the, in the review paper that tell the, how far we can reach in this direction. And this can help the people to win the next challenge because all the challenges are continuous from the previous one. Even the disease is changing, all the modality is changing, but you can still get benefits from the previous challenge reviews. Yeah, there are three lessons. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. So I guess just to summarize, the first lesson was that it's good if you are starting, just take out of the shelf algorithms, code out there and try it out, but that won't take you very far. The second one is basically just from the algorithmic design itself, think how it would generalize to new domains because that's the clinical reality. That there are many devices and the companies will put more and more products into market, newer devices, and then your algorithm has to make sure that they are adjusting to those devices by design. And I guess the third thing is if you want to win challenges, better do some form of ensembling 
that that always works. Yeah, so that's really a wonderful summary of so many years of doing the refuge challenge. So we are about the end part of our podcast. I have to interrupt a little bit because just to summarize three points, actually, I I rethink about this. It's just three points. The first one is get interest with this topic. You enter this topic. The second one, you can try from two aspects. One is uh, clinical terminology. I, I also know some a good paper and also the winners, they use some domain knowledge to fine tune their algorithm and get high performance. And also you can try from the other side, the, the algorithm side, you can use new algorithm, which these are based on you really understand the problem, not only from the clinic side, maybe from the, the algorithm side, you know it's a domain adaptation issue. Or you, you know, uh, clinical prior can help you to get high performance. That's all. I need, right? To solve the real problem, you from two aspects, from both engineer and clinical side, then you can get a good one. The first one you get familiar with, but the second one you can master it. The third one is how far we can go. It's just an ensemble. You know, these candidates, you can perform the ensemble with, right? You know the top three one, then you can ensemble the top three. Then it's good for the industry to make commercialization. So it benefits all the people here. Solve the clinical problem, benefit of ophthalmologists, and let the researcher have good publication. This is for the researchers and also for the industry. You can get a good product, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a all win for the yeah, technical researchers, industry personnel, and the clinicians yeah, sure. who are in need. So yeah, we are at the last part, and I, I guess. One of the things that we are increasingly becoming aware of is that digital health is going to be a major transformational factor for healthcare in post-pandemic. So you are part of the World Health Organization's Digital Health Advisory Panel. So I guess I have a two-part questions. The first part is about World Health Organization's view, the main focus areas of digital health post-pandemic, and how do you think Mikhai society can play a more prominent role in achieving that success? Okay, a good question. Yeah, actually this Digital Health Technical Adversary Group was formed in 2019, in October, in Geneva. It's the first meeting. And after that, we don't have the on-site meeting thereafter because of COVID-19, right? So the task changed a lot. Our initial goal is not, they don't have this, we don't expect to have this kind of pandemic. So we don't include this digital health for the pandemic issues. But once the COVID-19 broke out, the first topic we are solving, (laughs) digital health for COVID-19. It's just for the first half year. People know that it is useful to use digital tools to control the spread of COVID. But what's more important is physical containment, right? Physical separation. The people stay at home and less people get infected. But once these tools can help a little bit, but not not solve the problem, that means similar to the other digital device, it can improve the efficiency, right? it can decrease the cost, right? Because you don't need to meet the conditions face-to-face. It is reduced the cost. But to solve the real problem, you still need the traditional medical service. But the, for COVID-19, the problem is 
is overburdened on the traditional clinical service. So the, the digital health tools can solve only a small part problem for the remote internet hospital. You just have, it can solve the small issues. You cannot solve the serious issues. When people get infected, digital health tools cannot help them to be recovered, right? So yeah, we clearly noticed that. So we spent the first half year on that topic, COVID-19. We have some, the vaccine passport project for that. We, we are preparing for the international travel after pandemic at that time. So we hope that it can be finished with half year or one year. So we prepare the, the vaccine passport. But you know, till now, this is not available around the world. It's just among a few countries. I don't know whether it is available in Europe now, but the first test bed is in Europe. I know the WHO has this tool and the technical partner company, they have this tool, but I don't know whether they, they use this in real uh, practice. But I know uh, in, in Singapore and in China, yeah, we have this, but we don't have this among countries. But in China, we have this so-called digital vaccine passport or the, the test. We have the digital report for the COVID test. It's just a, on your phone. It's quite easy to access. We have this research and discussion in WHO, but it is not practical to use this around the world. There are a lot of reasons. So after that, we change back. We come back to the original goals we are making. We are now have the final report. It will be announced, I think, a few months later. Actually, there are only two parts. The first part is how to put WHO in the digital health transition. What's the leading role? How to achieve this leading role for the WHO? And how WHO can help the uh, member countries to implement the digital health? So we have some use cases from China and the good practice from the member countries. And we have a measure table for the countries to know what kind of digital health tools they can use based on the fundamental platform they have in the country, whether it is suitable to, to implement certain level digital health tools. And we have a clearinghouse to bridge the member country with the companies the providers, right? So it's the first part to make WHO a leading role in digital health transmission. And also let help WHO to help the member countries to start to implement their own digital health system. It's the first part. The second part is the internal digital transmission in WHO because you know WHO is quite old fashioned. The first, they don't have the so-called paperless workflow. They still have a lot of paper to be printed <laughs> and have a lot of documents not in the system. And they have a lot of systems which are isolated. They're not connected to one system. It, it is quite popular in a lot of countries, not only in WHO. So the second part is to support WHO to make the internal digital transmission. So we have these two main goals. So we have eight recommendations in total. The first four are for the first target. The next four are for the second target. Yeah, that's what we are doing. I see. So it would be fair to say that 
the digital transformation within World Health Organization and World Health is so far away from the, let's say, technical reality that needs to have Mikai society play a role that you don't see Mikai society being very active early on, maybe five years down the line, once we have the basic platform infrastructure in place, then Mikai play a more important role. That's another story. Because I joined uh, many related organizations. So, yeah. So why I'm so busy? Because I didn't focus on one task. I am multitasking. For WHO, I mean, for the headquarters, they have this, they call it DHI, Digital Health. I, I, I forgot that name, maybe institution, similar like that. They have a department called DHI. They are working on the internal digital transformation and also the, this DTAG group to help the WHO to have the leading role in digital health. This is more public health. You know, public health is, is another research topic not the Mikai Society focused on. Mikai Society not focused on public health. We are developing tools for public health, but we don't study public health, right? The public health is more high level, right? from the government level, right? Uh, at least a member country. But we focus on providing a single tool to a few conditions, right? But we have another group. We have a focus group, which is formed by the WHO and ITO. ITO, you know, is an international organization. It's also on the UN, right? International Telecom Union, right? So they have a lot of standards and make a lot of tools for three of usages. And healthcare is one of them. So we have AI for health focus group. And in that focus group, we have a lot of uh, theme. I is one of the theme and a lot of other things uh, for the other organs. And in that focus group, each focus group have the medical image analysis to support their goal. That means, for, for example, for I, we have a lot of digital tools for eye screening, for each disease, for each modality. And we also have a comprehensive one to integrate the EMR and the image. And also, we may have some for the cross organs, for multiple organs, not for eye, maybe including the kidney, and the food, right? Because it's all related to diabetics. Then we can have this group and we can have a medical image analysis tools or device for this disease. And we can support the focus group. And this focus group is on the WHO and ITU. So we are making standards. We are making benchmark data set and the certificate, the third part certificate. We have this for WHO to adopt. So we, the Mikhail community still have a very high chance to collaborate and to contribute to WHO through this focus group. I think there may have also other focus groups and may also take the medical image analysis tools. So with this kind of channel, the technical can support the public health. I mean, the technical tools can support the public health goals. So I think the Mikai community can support this in a quite nice perspective.
Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing this up, Frank, because this one of the main goal of this podcast is to really bring the, let's say, top technical research of Mikhail community to the bigger context to make it more relevant for the public health, for the digital health transformation, and really pointing this out that we can actually play a very important role for the international health community. On that note, thank you so much for your time. And it was really a wonderful one hour of discussing with you about several aspects of eye research, imaging AI for eye research, as well as the World Health Organization and your role there. So really, thank you for being here. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Really my pleasure. It's my first time to play with podcast. <laughs> it's a new journey. Yeah, you have done a wonderful thing. So on that note, have a nice day and talk to you later. Bye-bye, Frank. See you. Bye.